pop quiz, Hotshot. Was the Civil War about slavery or states' rights? Don't shout out the answer, just jot it down on a slip of paper and hang on to it for a minute. We'll come back to that later. History is amazing. You can do anything with it. Anything. Well, practically anything. You can't take it out for a fancy dinner, followed by swing dancing and cocktails, then invite it back to your place to unwind. But the good news is, you don't have to. You can fuck history without any of that romantic shit. You can add to it, delete it, add to it, then delete what you added, then add it back in and call it the real truth that was deleted to hide the real truth from the people of the future. You can make Jesus an Aryan. You can fill all of history with white people and make them all the good guys too. You can oversimplify the complicated bits and overcomplicate the simple ones. And it's so, so, so difficult to disprove because it all happened so long ago it's nearly impossible to separate the facts from the myths, especially with a period as complex and politicized as the American Civil War. You can say anything you want about the Civil War and find some detail to support your assertion. With the right combination of raw numbers and out-of-context quotes, you can turn Abraham Lincoln into anything from Aryan Jesus to George W. Bush to a more racist Gandhi, or turn Robert E. Lee into a less racist Gandhi. The problem is we kind of have to focus on these people and events in small segments because the whole picture is just so sprawling, it's hard to see any of it in the proper context to really understand it. That being said, it doesn't hurt to try. Today's film is a bit of an oddity from the ground up. A novice director is given a shoestring budget to produce an epic five-hour Civil War miniseries that ends up being released as a mammoth feature film at the behest of an eccentric media mogul. When I first heard the name Ted Turner, I was only a wee lad nine or so years of age, and he was that asshole who kept coloring in my beloved black and white movies with pastel crayons. Now I think of him fondly as the man who gives me Summer Under the Stars on TCM. Somewhere in between, he gave us this film, elevating a director whose biggest credit to date was The Parent Trap 2, assembling a slapdash all-star cast at the last possible minute, displaying for public consumption a parade of facial hair that resembles the retired Merkins of a 70s porn star, and offering a politically neutral take on one of the most important battles in the history of the modern world. So what's the answer? Was the Civil War fought over states' rights or slavery? Well, just go ahead and throw that scrap of paper in the trash. Because this movie doesn't give a fuck about any of that. It just wants to show you the historical events as they happened, without comment or editorial, and preferably in real time wherever possible. War is hell. People make films about it, and we love to talk about them. So everybody get comfy, because, and I can't stress this enough, this movie is four and a half hours long. And join us as a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director spend as much time as possible appreciating Sam Elliott and his God-level mustache, while we discuss 1993's Ron Maxwell-directed Ted Turner produced Civil War Reenactor's Wet Dream, starring Jeff Daniels as pretty much the best dude ever, and Martin Sheen as Confederate Santa Claus. Gettysburg. Dun, 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 dun.
Danger Close, a war film podcast. Today, we're here to talk about our first Civil War film, Gettysburg, from 1993, directed by Ron Maxwell. My name is Dan, and I'm here with my partners, Katie and Liam. Katie's going to be doing the history for this one, since she's the most knowledgeable about the Civil War, and because I went through elementary school not in the U.S., I really didn't study that much of the Civil War, so I don't know that much about it. It's really interesting reading all about it, and I'm excited for this conversation. To start us off, Katie's here with our mission briefing. Two men made Gettysburg happen. Ron Maxwell, about whom we will have much to say later, and Ted Turner. In the early 90s, Ted Turner was trying to be seen as a maverick in business. He started CNN, the first big news network not based in New York created the cable channel TBS, and then set his sights on Hollywood. A proud Southerner, Turner jumped at the chance to make Gettysburg when CBS dropped out of funding. Ron Maxwell had been obsessed with the book The Killer Angels since its release, and spent more than a decade working to realize his dream of making a big-budget film about it. With Turner's offer of a $20 million budget, and allowing Maxwell to direct his own script, Ron finally got his chance to make Gettysburg. But even in 1993, $20 million was not exactly a mountain of money to make an epic film. The initial plan was for it to be a miniseries that would air on Turner's network. But after it was completed, Ted decided to release it to theaters with his company New Line Cinema. There were only 200 theatrical prints circling the country. And yet the film managed to gross over $12 million, which is a very impressive feat for a four-hour film which at that time meant it could only play twice a day. Critics seemed to be of two minds about this film, and Siskel and Ebert perfectly captured those two minds in their discussion about this. Ebert rightly pointed out that the rigorous attention to detail, tactics, and strategy would snare any Civil War buff, while Siskel was put off by the overtly heroic treatment of the Southern officers, particularly General Lee. A lot of this movie's strengths lie in its dedication to accuracy, and through the use of over 5,000 Civil War reenactors as extras, they nail that part of it. But accuracy and authenticity are two very different things. And I'm wondering, what did you guys think of how this film ends up juxtaposing those two ideas? I think that the attention to detail as far as the costuming and things like that. Uh, those those are some things that you can put the time into and it can impress on the screen without taking anything away from the story, without making a movie that's four and a half hours long. So in that sense, I think the due diligence that they did for this film probably paid off more often than not. When you have to see every inch of the mile of Pickett's Charge at the pace that Pickett's Charge was actually going at, that's that's a lot. 
people go on holiday to Gettysburg to watch reenactors do that, but that's what they do for their like holiday and not that that's not appealing to everybody. So trying to like capture the experience of standing in the heat, watching civil war reenactors do Pickett's charge on film was a choice. I don't know that they balanced that out very well. Personally, I think they leaned more towards accuracy than authenticity. I suppose you're, you're playing those two things off of each other. Like, well, this gives you the idea of like the experience, but this is like, this is the way it really happened. Authenticity to me is how it like, it feels real as opposed to accuracy is it looks real. Right. I think they leaned more towards accuracy than authenticity because things like (laughs) watching Jeff Daniels run up that hill over and over again is like, I it really captures the idea of how tiring it was to run up that hill. However, if you're looking for the battle of little round top to be really viscerally exciting for an audience so that they get that excitement of what it was like, just showing Jeff Daniels like running in like this Jeff Daniels, he kind of way with his saber drawn. No, no knocking the guy. He's doing it better than I could have done it. Like he's, I, I'm twice the man Jeff Daniels is, but it, it does. It's not an impressive look. It's not like a heroic run. He's, he's sort of like carefully lilting down the hill with his saber drawn And no matter what kind of music you put over that, it's still going to look like a bunch of like middle-aged dudes trying not to roll an ankle running down this hill. You know, I feel like the camera work really didn't do them any favors. Like it captured what they were pointing the camera at, but I feel like they were kind of not, I don't know if it was in the editing, if there was any editing done in this movie. Like I know there had to have been because they put it together, but man, they did not leave much out on the cutting room floor there. Yeah, woof. This is going to be hard. <laughs> it's weird. So many decisions here in the production of this film were overall sound decisions made for the right reasons. I can see why filming in the US and having access to the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of extras who are already reenactors, who already have all the uniforms, they have the tents, they have the replica muskets, like they have all that equipment. Not only are you going to save a ton of money on this tight budget, just inviting them to be like, hey, you want to be in a movie, right? Like none of these guys need to get paid. They're going to be stoked to just show up. And that's great, I think, for the when you need to see a thousand men on a field charging at each other and and all that sort of stuff. Or again, make all the equipment authentic. It's like, oh, that guy's brushing his teeth with a horsehair toothbrush. That's awesome. (laughs) Uh, But I think it's in the direction and the camera work and the editing that you then turn that into a motion picture and not just a recording of a Civil War reenactment like Liam is talking about. And you have to sort of making this film involved walking that line the whole time. And I think there are some scenes where they pull it off, but there's a ton of scenes where it falls on its face. And so in terms of Katie's question about accuracy versus authenticity, 
when it comes to the minutia of uniform details, et cetera, et cetera, having the right canons, they mostly succeeded and did the right things. You know, you can go through the goof sections and there's still things that were inaccurate about it or actors who chose to wear one hat over another because they liked the way it made them look while it may not have been the actual type of hat that general may have worn. But beyond that, I think that there are several elements here that I need to ask you guys about and maybe even the audience if we don't know. But I'm like, were there not any black soldiers in this particular battle for the Union? No. There were not. No, no not even a little. In real life? Yes. Okay. But there absolutely were a buck ton of slaves on the southern side that were supporting. That's what I figured. All of the... Activities. So, like, when they show in camp that there aren't black folks running around doing all of the hard labor. Cooking and, right, all that. Yeah, and serving as aide-de-camps to the officers, like, that kind of thing. Like, that's what they were slaves. They had to do whatever. So, that's, that is something that's very not accurate. So, that's one thing that stuck out to me is we see one escaped slave, period. That is the only black person you see in this entire four and a half hour run, which I thought was strange and a weird choice but once we get into the philosophy and the background of this i think that will make more sense i think most importantly this is the opposite problem of a kingdom of heaven where not only do you have the budget to show whatever you want but there are literally people like holding buckets of blood and just shooting them across the screen and you're like oh my god the gore you know it's all intense I don't know that I have seen another war film where the lack of gore and lack of blood and lack of accuracy when it came to how harrowing combat looks. I don't know if I've seen a movie where it impacted the film more negatively than in this film. Yes. The PG-13-ness of the battles in this. It's PG, isn't it? This is a PG film. Even worse. Okay, the PG rating how you choose to make a four and a half hour civil war film with a PG rating is mind blowing to begin with, because again, you're obviously committed to accuracy and you're not scared of a long runtime. And you can't even say that like 1993 is the problem here because dances with wolves is like a, not, not quite that runtime, but you know, somewhat similar theater and the guttural realness of the violence and blood in that. I haven't seen it in a long time and I'm sure it has its issues even when it comes to that, but there's more of it. And I just feel like when you read accounts and forgive me for being graphic for a second, but when you hear a soldier retelling an account of someone next to him getting hit in the face with a, with a musket ball and like his brains flying all over the person next to you's face and just like, Literally, you're swimming in blood and gore. And, and I get that most war films don't show that level of gore. And that's okay. I understand that you can only make things so graphic for an audience. But when you turn it into a bunch of reenactors doing basically what I did when I was eight years old, playing cowboys and Indians, forgive the old terminology with my sister, where we're just running around finger shooting at each other and then going Ugh, and like falling down and dying. Like if you pay attention, that's what a lot of the extras are doing. And it's just looks terrible like you can't just have people all of a sudden falling down dead it doesn't have the impact so I'll, I'll talk about that more in a little bit but i think when it comes to accuracy and authenticity that's where there's a huge split in this movie for me and it's a big problem yeah that's a really good point 
one of the reasons why it wasn't so surprising to me. I mean, I grew up watching really old movies where everybody died like that. You know, like they just didn't show the blood. And if there was blood, it was if it was in black and white, chances are it was Hershey syrup. But most of the time it was like they get shot and then like it cuts away and then it cuts back and then there's blood on them. You know, that kind of thing. There was <laughs> there was a uh, an instance and I don't know if this made it into the theatrical cut or if it was just in the extended. OK, so if you guys watch this on Prime, there are two options and I don't know that they're necessarily easily distinguishable from one another when you're clicking on them. But one of them is the theatrical cut, which is four hours long, four hours and 10 minutes. And it's good enough, folks. It's good enough. Then there's the other one, which is the extended cut, which they managed to find the 20 minutes that they cut out and put them back in. So I don't know if this made it into the theatrical cut, but there was a scene where Longstreet is walking through among the wounded and uh, there's a guy who like has had his leg amputated or blown off, but it kind of looks like a ham that they painted red. Like his stub looks like a ham. It probably was. It probably was, but it looks like a ham that they, that they dyed red or something. And it just, it was not like, that's as graphic as this movie gets. And it looked like a ham. Yeah. And I, and I get that you're trying to work with a small budget and you just, don't have the budget to do a lot of this, but it's just even the lack of squibs in most of the battle scenes, because it's multiplied times hundreds and hundreds of wounds, it becomes more and more evident the further you go along in the film. And that's a problem. But honestly, when it comes to picking which version of this film you guys are going to watch, if you're going to subject yourself to this film, just watch the full, watch the long one because it's only 20 minutes longer. And I don't want to do Ron Maxwell any favors by giving him a shorter edit. I feel that he deserves all the shit he's going to get from me in this episode. <laughs> and yeah. Well, I think the reason I asked about authenticity versus accuracy is because there is such a vast difference between the two when it comes to film. And this movie is a fucking fantastic example of the difference between them and maybe this is because ron maxwell isn't necessarily like a long time filmmaker at this point i mean he's still not i think he's got six imdb credits as a director but you'll notice that all of the civil war reenactors their uniforms are like the confederates are actually gray and <laughs> faded and look like they've been to war and all of the officer uniforms are like that crisp, perfect, you know, fresh off the presses type, except for Sam Elliott, because Sam Elliott was like, this doesn't look right. And so he called up a costuming buddy and learned how to age his uniform and made it look good. And so and that and he only appears in the very beginning of the film. And so I saw that and I was like, oh. Oh, good. And then all of a sudden, everybody's wearing like very similar looking dark outfits. I'm like, why do all of the Confederate soldiers look like Confederate soldiers? But the officers, it's a lot harder to tell. And they look just so toys fresh out the box almost. And it's like, you can have a great accurate uniform, but so many of these men had already been fighting. They had fought through several battles. 
This was not their first rodeo. They would not have looked like that. So for me, it falls down because that dedication to accuracy betrays a sense of authenticity because in order for you to feel authentic in a film there has to be a certain amount of artifice like we have to be telling a story we have to be trying to capture people and a documentary is far more about accuracy so i i was that to me was really the defining idea of this film was you tried so hard and yet you missed the mark i think you were aiming for you're selling something, but you're not really putting the whole car together there. And it's and it starts to fall apart as it goes down the road. I'm glad you mentioned Sam Elliott, because aside from gore and realism with the violence, the other thing this film is really missing is a lot more of Sam Elliott. Right. Well, and I think the 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 the, the extended cut has more Sam Elliott. I think. Oh, I man. Think a lot of that 20 minutes is because there was a lot more of Sam Elliott than I remembered being. Now, granted, I don't watch this movie all the time. It's been a long time since I've sat down and watched Gettysburg, but I remember Sam Elliott, like being there a little bit in the beginning and then just fucking off somewhere. But like, I was like, man, we're really sticking with Sam Elliott here. Like, this is great. He gets to give one of the 30 or 40 heroic speeches, <laughs> you know, which is great. It's great for Sam Elliott. I was very happy for him. Well, he he sells it better than most of them do. True. Yeah, it's. it's and these men will beat their chests. And you know, it's like, yeah, fucking Sam Elliott, right? For me, he does the best. And Jeff Daniels is, is a close second. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. Sam Elliott, I've, I, I feel there. I feel that authenticity of someone who is acting when was the last time Sam Elliott said anything and it doesn't come off as authentic? Like that dude's right. authentic as hell. He was authentic and we were soldiers. Right. Even without right. his mustache. Like you still believed him. Yeah. He's, he's an amazing actor and that definitely helps in this film, especially because in the beginning it feels we'll get into how this film deteriorates over time. I think uh, real quick, a comment on uniforms. Uh, obviously I, I knew about the, um, the Sam Elliott efforts to make his uniform look more used and more authentic. But I found that it was when I saw the British observer, the Colonel who comes out <laughs> oh my God. in like the reddest red coat you've ever seen on the planet holding like British China like, and having like a cup a of limey tea. McCrumpet ears, right? <laughs> Just what the fuck is wrong with that dude? But the white trim on his jacket is like the brightest white you've ever seen. And I'm like, I don't care if this guy is the most sidelined observer ever. There's no way you're in this like dusty heat in July and that uniform looks that clean. Like that one really stuck out. It turns out that to avoid <laughs> confusing the audience, Ron Maxwell had James Lancaster wear a bright red uniform and carry a cup of tea. Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Fremantle's actual British uniform would have been dark blue, similar to that of a Union officer. In real life, because like almost everyone in this film, he was a real person, Fremantle never wore a uniform during his American trip. He wore the civilian clothes the character wore during the poker game on the first night. So not only does that uniform mistake stick out the most, but you can squarely place that at the feet of Ron Maxwell, thankfully. Yeah, because you got to make sure that we're not confusing us. <laughs> and you know what? I think... I may this may be a little premature, but I need to talk about the beards and oh this boy. and the facial hair. <laughs> Do it. Because 
it felt like at a certain uh, for certain characters, it's like, okay, we need to have everybody has to have a different look with their facial hair so we can tell them all apart. And which was helpful. Not going to lie. It was very helpful to be like, okay, giant McFakey beard is is long street. And, you know, obviously I know Lee, like the big players. But when we get down into the generals that are the commanders or whoever, who we might only see for a few scenes, but they come back very periodically throughout the film, it's helpful when you have a very identifiable facial hair. So for sure. they really, they and at this time, extravagant facial hair was absolutely the thing. Absolutely the thing. So it's it works. And from what I could tell in the, uh, in the very beginning, you know, the film opens with pictures of the actual men who these actors are portraying. And their facial hair does pretty much match i mean as well as bad fake beards can because oh god but fa- not all of them are fake a lot of them no, are no but most of the big names uh, like the the actors because i typically actors don't unless they're out of work for quite some time don't grow giant luxurious long beards because you know they got to be flexible for the roles unfortunately some of them are wearing fake beards when they probably could have grown a much better, more convincing beard themselves. But the timing was against them. Right. I am convinced there's no way to make a good, long, fake beard unless you are like Wettaworks. Right. I mean, they did make better beards than they put on the mutants in Damnation Alley because those beards were atrocious. <laughs> these are these are a I, step I up. don't know. I oh, feel like Ber- Behringer's beard is up there. It's so bad. It is. It is atrocious. He looks like the cowardly lion. Right. They made it look <laughs> iron, though. They made it look like he took a, a straightening iron to his beard, which is like, well, which is kind of what they look like. If you look at the photos, like that's like those are some groomed ass beards. Oh, yeah. And they definitely did. I don't know how they got their beards to look like that. Jeb Stewart's beard and mustache kind of look like Jeb Stewart's beard and mustache. Right. It just looks stupid. Right. It looks artificial. And it doesn't match with the face on the actor the way it did with the face that grew it. <laughs> I I have to say that. that So my favorite quote from one of the many reviews I read from this was that Longstreet's beard looks like an Amish guy on a bad beer day. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it was like. <gasps> I'll, I'll give a little bit of a pass to the production on this because I know the budget was really low, but I can't remember at this point in the trivia, which character, but there was one of the actors playing a general who just absolutely refused to wear a fake beard. And he was like, you either wait for me or I'm not taking this role. And they let him do it. So the production did wait for one particular actor to grow out a real beard. So I think having had the time, they would have done it for everyone. I don't think they were against it. It's just that, Martin Sheen came on the project super late. There's no way he would have had time to grow a beard. Like two, like days, literal days. I think like two days before they started shooting. And Lieutenant Chamberlain as well, specifically C. Thomas Howell, who played him. So he's uh, Jeff Daniels character's younger brother who plays his adjutant. That actor specifically asked to grow his beard out. And while they would have let him, they were like, there's no time. And so he had to wear a fake beard. So, you know, they, they wanted to and they tried and they did it when they could. His isn't too bad, honestly. Like, he wears that beard well. But I think there's a... And as I have learned, beards are not like, not given out equally to men. 
No. Some men, some mm. men can grow. Like I grew up, my dad is a, a very uh, prodigious beard grower when he wants to. You know, probably our Eastern European heritage helping that out a little bit. But I learned through my dating years and having male friends, I was like, oh, sometimes you just can't grow a beard. So I think that's probably what's going on here. And it's another thing that ties back to that authenticity and realism that the film goes for to its own detriment, I think, sometimes. I think that is, for me, the biggest flaw of a film that is incredibly flawed. I know that this is, this is a very much beloved movie, right? Is that your guys' impression of it as well? I think so, especially among Civil War buffs. So, for me, I saw this movie when I was very young. I think this is, if you're not just really into the Civil War, I feel like this is a, this is a dad movie. Yes. I feel like I don't know that there's anybody who saw this movie for the first time without their dad. It's a movie that you watch with your dad. And I don't necessarily, I don't mean, it sounds like I'm deriding it, but I don't mean that in a bad way. No. But it is a, it is a movie that like, when you think back on it, fosters a lot of warm feeling, either because you saw it in the 90s or because you saw it with your dad or because you're really into the Civil War and they tried to get a lot of the shit right. I I love this movie when I'm not watching it. You love the idea of this uh, movie? Yeah, like when I think about Gettysburg, the first fucking CD I bought was the Gettysburg soundtrack. No. no. Oh I swear God. to God. It was like 1994. What? Oh when I got a CD player and the first CD I bought was the soundtrack to Gettysburg. <laughs> this soundtrack is better than the We Were Soldiers soundtrack. Yes, the it is. The soundtrack itself is not actually bad. That's a different question than how it is used, which I'm sure we'll Correct. get into. But the soundtrack itself is not bad. No, I agree. So it's that weird... 1993 era where you can't tell if they're using instruments or synths. Mm. Mm -hmm. Right. You know what I mean? Where you're like, is, are those violins or are those Yamaha violins? Yeah. I, there was at least two or three instances of that when I was watching the film, for sure. As one reviewer described it, it sounded like it was recorded for a mid-range Casio keyboard. Ooh, right. That's what it was. It's like wicked burn. <laughs> yeah, that's that's way, way to throw some shade on Casio there. Mid-range. <laughs> and I, I had a mid-range Casio keyboard at that exact time that I played with yep. all the time. So. We had that one in our, in our house, too. My mom used to play the piano on that all the time. Yeah, so ease up on the Casios, guy. Right? I was like the judgy. And it was of the era. Too. So, you know, I think that was the L.A. Times review. <laughs> that was the very super judgy one. I wanted to follow up with Liam for a second, because if anyone in the audience is not has not been listening or maybe this is your first episode, Liam is a Pennsylvania man. So I'm from Pittsburgh. I do. I did want to know. It's different. Did that aspect have carry Did like did this film carry a heavier significance for you or for your dad because it's from close to where you live? No. So first of all, Gettysburg is not actually that close to me. It's three or four hours or something, but I mean, it's closer than yeah, California. It's still like a four hour drive. It's, it's closer than you are, but like Western Pennsylvania and Eastern Pennsylvania might as well be from like 
California to Hawaii. There is an ocean between, and that ocean is where Gettysburg is. Are those the Blue Ridge Mountains? Yeah, well, it's the it's the Appalachian Mountains. Okay. Just generally speaking, you can divide Pennsylvania into Western PA and Eastern PA. Mm-hmm. In the middle, there's this grayish area where you have things like State College and Harrisburg, which I think is where Lee was originally heading was towards Harrisburg, which is the capital of Pennsylvania, to, to draw the Union Army up so he wouldn't sack Harrisburg. But Gettysburg is around there, maybe a little bit east of of that. So it really never felt close to me. Like, I've never even been there. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's how Are you serious? I am so serious. We do not we do not have any truck with with the the eastern side of the state. I've been there. I have toured Gettysburg. Yeah, no. Never done it. It's pretty cool, honestly. I would be willing to bet that if you just stopped a thousand people on the street in Pittsburgh and said, "Have you ever been to the battlefield of Gettysburg?" A thousand and one of them would say, "Why would I have gone to Gettysburg?" Right. A lot of this is filmed on exact location. Yes. Little Round Top, for example. So much so that at Little Round Top, I think it actually one of the edits might have not caught it, but there's a statue there. It might even be a statue of, of Chamberlain. No, it's another dude who wasn't there at the time. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> like stand in front of it, like force perspective and out of position. They have the 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 guy who the statue of is in the movie. But he wasn't at Little Round Top when the battle happened. But they have him there for a shot in the movie so that he could stand in front of the, in front of the statue of himself and block oh it God. out. Wow, that is the weirdest <laughs> instant that I don't. Yeah, that's never happened in any other movie ever. <laughs> well, and that's the main reason. So if they film things in a field that wasn't the exact field where that battle happened, it's because there are monuments placed in those fields and they couldn't get around that. So they had to move over a little bit to be in a more clear location. Yeah. So it's like just outside of Gettysburg. Right. That was the first time that ever happened that the national park service who's in charge of Gettysburg's memorial areas allowed filming to happen on there on those grounds. So it was a huge deal that they got that permission. There's also a uh, a lecture that I watched from Steve Knott of the Army War College, and this was specifically to my Jeb Stewart research. His stance was that the idea was never to actually take D.C. or even to lay siege to it, but rather to to draw the Union or the Army of the Potomac out so that they could destroy it. The North had limitless resources in terms of material and people, but what he wanted to break was their will to fight. Right. And if you destroy the army of the Potomac, then basically he wanted them to be able to sue for peace, which is what they say at the very beginning of the movie is that there was like a letter that was ready to go offering peace. And peace with the Confederate States of America intact was victory for them. Right. They weren't going to take over the North. They just wanted to be their own thing. Right. So when Gettysburg is happening, we're about halfway through the war. And previous to this, the South had been 
pretty successful. They had won a lot of campaigns, the Union Army in particular, whether they were fighting against actual Southern armies or militias that the South had raised, had been not doing so well and had been pushed back. And so this was the start of the Confederacy trying to make its way into the North to try to, from the perspective of the Union Army, to take Washington, D.C. But in reality... And at this point, they were already running low on supplies, on reserves. I mean, the film talks about that, about, you know, the, the instigation of this whole thing is that the Confederate soldiers want to go in and get shoes. And, and that's what brings it all about, because they did not have the reserves, the supplies, the industrial capabilities that the North had. So they were outside of their own territories and therefore had to rely on provisions that they could, you know, beg, borrow, or steal or pay them not real money for. Thank you to our friend Dave for a lot of this particular research on Gettysburg. Dave is very knowledgeable about the Civil War. He is. And Dennis, our other researcher, brought up a lot on um, Colonel Chamberlain, which we'll talk about in a little bit. A lot of the Southern economy was agrarian, and I think at least like 40% of it was based on essentially slaves working in fields, whether it was cotton or other agricultural products. And so really, they didn't have the industry to compete with the North. So once you're in a situation like this, where your trade has been embargoed, Scott's idea strategically was the anaconda. So to sort of constrict the southeastern United States and split it in two by taking control of the Mississippi. So at this point, the Union was controlling the Mississippi. So so the ability for the South to really even move goods around and ammo and resupply was really limited. And that hurt them a lot. Not to mention the fact that they weren't able to employ 40% of their population who were black slaves. They didn't enlist them. They did, again, something this movie doesn't depict. They were able to take slaves and get some work in the field out of them, in the military field, by supporting the camps and doing that kind of thing. But the South, only at the very end did the South really have a discussion about whether they could or should conscript black slaves into the army and they were never really able to get to that point for obvious reasons, because you're now just going to hand muskets to all these black slaves and expect them to be loyal to you when really all they have to do is kill a couple of people around them and run away to the north, which, of course, was happening a lot. Well, and also the uh, just from the, the production standpoint, New York City by itself had a higher gross domestic product than the entire South did. All of it. Cotton <laughs> was a cash crop for a short period of time and once the north had enacted their anaconda plan where they were blockading every single port the south couldn't make any money there mm -hmm. was no money coming in there were no supplies coming in they had what they had and that was it it's the beginning of the end mm -hmm. it's kind of how it's seen now and that's that's why this is the midpoint of the war because they lost Gettysburg is why this is the midpoint of the war. If they right. had won at Gettysburg, that would have been the game, pretty much. Yeah, they could have gotten to Washington. Well, if they had succeeded in destroying the Army of the Potomac in Gettysburg, 
where the brunt of it was. That's then objective would have been achieved. Nothing would have stood between them and Washington. They could have just sent the letter and said, Hey, let's just have peace. And they would have been like, uh, yeah, I guess we'll do that. So in early 1865, when considering whether you could offer freedom to slaves fighting for the Confederacy, because the argument being, well, if we lose the war, the slaves are all going to be freed anyway. So our choice is let the Union free them, or we could free them now and actually have them fight for us and win the war. The, the problem, of course, is that once you've conscripted slaves or um, conscripted them under the condition that if they fight for the army, they will be freed. Even if you win, what's the idea here? You were trying to win so that you could continue this economy and this life of slavery, but now you've sort of lost all your slaves in a different way. So you can see the conflict there. Confederate politician and General Howell Cobb wrote, quote, if slaves will make good soldiers, our whole theory of slavery is wrong, end quote. Which it was. <laughs> yes, clearly. Everything about it was terribly, terribly right. wrong. Have we come out against slavery on the show officially yet? We're... Danger Close is officially against slavery, everyone. I would like to take this moment to say that I can't speak for Dan or Katie. I myself <laughs> am specifically against slavery. I am very against the idea of slavery. Just the idea? Well, I can sometimes be found getting banned temporarily from Facebook for using quote unquote hate speech like fucking Italians. Ah, fragile. It must be Italian. I do want to go on the record and say that I am very anti-slavery. Yeah, fuck slavery. It's it's one of the worst things, one of the worst institutions that can be visited upon another human being. So to get back to the accuracy versus authenticity, one of the big things that this movie aims to do is to show the battle from beginning to end as it happened, at least from a certain perspective. You know, this starts off at the very beginning. We see Martin Sheen as Robert E. Lee being given news. We get to see Jeff Daniels, who is being gifted, what is it, 120 mutineers, I think they say, from a very early main regiment and he is of the 20th main regiment so he, he's being gifted these mutineers and being told well just kill him if they run away and he's like I'm not I'm, I'm not gonna do that that's no <laughs> right. I'm not gonna do that thanks though and that storyline then carries on throughout the film and is one of the few good narrative through lines that happen I think. right that actually tell you something about a person's character and that is referenced back again later and one of like we mentioned right. one of the good speeches of all the many speeches in the film and i think i feel like you can kind of split this movie into two halves almost there's a little round top and then there's after a little round top and this first part really more focuses on the union army and Jeff Daniels as Chamberlain in particular. And we kind of get to see a little bit of the Southern strategy and how Lee is reacting to these changes and the news. But really the focus kind of stays on the Northern Army during this part, and then it kind of flips during the second section of the film. And for me, the first part is definitely stronger because... It really gives a lot of time to Chamberlain, his brother, and... Uh, the fake Irishman? Sergeant Buster Kilrain. 
I think he's the only fictional character in the film. He's he's supposed to be the only fictional character. Nobody can seem to prove if the spokesman of the mutineers was real. Mm, right. But Shara said that he was, but nobody can really like find his name in the roles. But there are like people in Maine that claim to be related to him you know like so right it's it's one of those kind of like phantom things that like might have existed might not have but enough people say he did that sure we'll call him a, a historical figure sure but also in the film those people because of the narrative do need a spokesperson so it's like you know whether he was a real dude or that specific person or not like it makes sense for it, the character makes sense for the film but there are a couple of people right. that Kilrain could have been like an amalgamation of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there that he, he could have been inspired by like one of, or both of two people. Right. And it is interesting. His type of character brings up something historically that we're less used to now, but the fact that there was a whole division nicknamed the Dutchman because there were so many German immigrants and the Irish brigade. Yeah, the Irish Brigade, the Garibaldi Brigade, because there were so many Italians. So much so, because also, Italy's liberation was happening around this time, or had happened 10 years prior. It's around the 1850s, don't quote me, but I can't remember the exact date. But You're going to lose your Italian card. Yeah, when Garibaldi and his thousand red shirts swooped down Italy and committed atrocious war crimes by the way there's there's a whole thing in italy of reading like what you're taught in school about yay garibaldi and his thousands like liberating italy and then you read the southern version of that story it's kind of like the opposite of our civil war but yeah there's lots of gore and gruesome things going on there anyways my point being that uh there were so many european immigrants in the u.s especially in specific communities pennsylvania having a large german immigrant community that yeah there were there were even these groups that were subdivided within the army because they all spoke the same language and some of them didn't even speak english yeah there's very much the two different armies had two very different makeups you know for the southern army there's the top of the line the slaveholders the plantation owners the gentlemen if you will most of whom uh, who were if they were in higher levels and or positions in the army had spent time at west point there were the poor whites and then the slaves. And that was kind of a very calcified stratification of these uh, of these groups. Whereas in the Union, there was so many more immigrants, so many more varieties of different folks coming in and doing their bit. So it it's interesting what drove all of these different people. And along those lines, the difference in the military leadership as well, because like you said, most of the Southern Confederate officers were West Pointers and professional soldiers. They were career soldiers. They had studied tactics for years. They were sort of Napoleonic era, or that's what they had studied, you know, and this is the time period mm-hmm. versus you had a lot in in the union, you had a lot more of what we see in sort of like the Tom Hanks portrayal of a captain in Saving Private Ryan, for example, where you find out that where he was a teacher. Spoiler alert. He was a teacher. Well, so was Chamberlain, right? Exactly. He was a teacher as exactly. well. He was an academic. I mean, when you look at his credentials, which he was a Greek scholar, right? He studied the ancients. He studied religion. So, and I think that some of that background, once you know about it, 
comes across in that first speech, for example, or, or in the speech where he's trying to convince oh these God, yes. these mutineers to join the 20th Maine, because it's not that sort of classic, hard, patriotic militarism type of speech that you're used to. It's very much a, listen, I get that you don't want to be here, but here we are. Your choice is to move along under guard, and I'm not going to force you to fight. But if you fight with us, we may actually have a chance of ending this war. And it's really a good speech, if if not for the score that's being heavily layered underneath, which is, you know, it's, it's the we were soldiers problem. It's this whole having the emotions painted onto the background the whole time, whereas arguably that speech would have been great with just the sound of the environment. Like just putting a mic in that field yeah. and hearing the men murmur and hearing when the men went went quiet and were really paying attention to what he was saying, I think sonically would have made a much better background than the actual score in that case. Right. And Jeff Daniels talked about the experience of making that scene because the vast majority of the nonverbal roles that you see on screen are performed by um Civil War reenactors, which is also why they're all far too old to be participating in the Civil War. Because the war was much more perpetrated by men under the age of, what, 25? Just like every war. Exactly. So he talked about it felt like it was more of a Broadway or a stage performance because he had to really inspire these people because none of them were actual actors, which is also, in my opinion, a big detriment to the film. So in some ways, you are seeing him give a different performance than the average actor would have because he really had to bring everything out to these guys in order to get that emotional reaction. And he said that by the end, he saw tears in some of the men's eyes and he was like, all right, I did it. <laughs> I succeeded. In my opinion, it's probably one of the best speeches of a film mm-hmm. filled with speeches. Oh, for sure. Yeah, one of the things that came up in doing the research for this <laughs> was that Reenactors are great for some things and not for others. So while you definitely want a lot of these people for, especially um, wide shot, long range stuff where you have a huge army in the background, because again, these guys were providing their own tents, their own rifles, their own boots, toothbrushes, all that stuff. It's going to be harder to convince them to help you out if you're then not going to also let them be the extra in the film. So while it makes sense for a lot of these reenactors to be in the film, you know, one of the points I saw brought up on on a YouTube channel, which I'll, I'll post in the group and, and give credit to, was why didn't you go pull 22-year-olds from every acting school around and offer them roles by, you know, putting them in the period-appropriate uniform but they could have acted out the deaths and the parts that actually required some acting so much better. You want the reenactors and you want these people to be consultants. You need them there for the accuracy and you really want them to tell you when you're straying too far from what things would have actually looked like. But when it comes to especially tighter shots of close-ups of people getting shot and having to actually interact with each other, you need some actual acting here. And most of these reenactors, I'll bet you are not trained as actors at all and it shows they wouldn't have been able to do that without paying them sure because they they would have had to fit within union guidelines because i'm sure this was a union show the budget takes part of the blame for these decisions right there's only so much you can do especially at this scale 
It's not like you can ask the reenactors like, yeah, great. Let's just give us your uniform and we'll put it on this this other guy. So that was, I think, I think that was probably one of the biggest reasons why they used the reenactors is because the costume and makeup budget would have been astronomical to reach the level of accuracy that they were going for with this one. I really had to dial back the beard budget. From $5. Unfortunately, when you recruit the 501st, the guys that have all the stormtrooper armor for like say the Mandalorian, which is one of the things they did in there, they're all wearing masks. So their actual acting ability is not that important as long as they know how to stand and run around looking like a stormtrooper. And fall over when they get shot. Exactly. Whereas in this, you have a problem where acting actually becomes an issue. And again, we see it a lot. And they don't have any special effects in regards to squibs yes. or wounds or anything like that. So even if it was a situation where, and beyond that, the reenactors are not going to let you get all this fake blood on their very expensive equipment. Also true. If you have squibs and fake blood and a special effects budget, you, you can even help reenactors kind of find their place. But if you don't have any of that, it's like, okay, you've, you're dead. It's almost like an improv class. For total newbies who who aren't necessarily well, I mean, if they're reenactors, they're probably a little into improv. Well, yeah, but they're but, also used to seeing it like having people see them die from like way across the battlefield, right? Like when you go watch reenactors, you're not up there with the camera, right? Which is one of the reasons why they usually have an over dramatized look to the way they do those death scenes is it's like theater, right? You have to exaggerate facial expressions or makeup has to be heavier because people are further away from you. Similar concept. Yeah. Cause it, it has to communicate across a distance. Right. And in, in, right. in addition, I remember I read one detail where for safety, you don't ever fall down with a loaded musket. So if they were going to go down from being hit, it had to be after they'd already fired their musket or they would just have to fire it in the air, not necessarily pointing it at anyone in particular. So, yeah, there's there's all kinds of weird little things about the reenactment that become a problem. And I think, again, a lot of it is budget driven. When you see the effects with the cannons, that one's pretty interesting. I ended up talking to Jeff, our weapons expert, to ask him about the accuracy of some of the weapons. First thing I noticed was the sniper rifle. That was a Whitworth rifle with the long scope. It looks kind of like a sniper rifle. Uh, Interestingly, it was still a muzzle loader, so it wasn't an actual... I don't think it had a rifle barrel because you still... It didn't have a cartridge. It was still... Well, no, I'm I'm even talking about the rifling along the barrel, which is part of what makes a rifle more accurate than a a musket. So I don't know. Jeff will have to... That's one thing I didn't 100% understand, but it was the most accurate muzzle loader of the time. And then... The artillery, the cannons that they're using are most likely Napoleonic 12 pounders, probably model 1857s. So from just slightly earlier, pretty newish model at the time. And that was a question I had since we're talking about effects a little bit is, you know, you see these explosions all over the place that, you know, are pyro, right? You know, that are they're already set up in the ground. They're a ground squib, essentially, if you want to call it that. And so you're mostly just seeing a puff and that maybe there's some compressed air or whatever they're using for the actual explosion. And oftentimes they seem to be going off way too close to soldiers for them to not actually be getting hit by things. But that all depends on what ammunition you're simulating, which 
They hardly bothered to show the difference in this except for long range shots versus up close shots. But in real life, what you would have had here is solid shot which is your traditional cannonball that you would think about. Which does not explode. No, it bounces. It just rolls and causes all sorts of... Exactly. Causes its own havoc. Yeah, it it works off of its own kinetic energy. It's just a 12-pound ball of solid iron or steel, and it rolls through, and if it hits you, you're toast. It's going to... It's taking off your leg. It's taking off whatever limb it hits. And it can obviously cause havoc to many troops at a time. It also has the longest range of any of the ammunition they would have had. So when they were firing volleys at the beginning or before an assault, that's what they would have been firing. But it's not really like a shrapnel-based sort of area of effect. Correct. It's it's definitely definitely not. So And the other two types of shots you would have had were both anti-infantry uh more specifically so the canister shot which is essentially like a giant shotgun shell so it's a canister that when shot out of the barrel eventually the thin metal covering kind of just disintegrates and the balls inside spread out like a cone so literally like a giant shotgun but with you know smaller than cannonballs yeah equivalent yeah or a little bigger than that but yeah essentially large metal balls and then there's a case or shrapnel shot i didn't know shrapnel was an actual dude i forget his first name now but that was his last name and so that's an actual exploding round with a fuse that would fly through the air and then would be timed obviously with more or less accuracy to explode either over troops or in the midst of troops and that would just blow shrapnel everywhere and obviously cause a lot of damage and kill people that way so those are the three types of historical shot that would have been happening out of these cannons But in translation into the film, in terms of accuracy, mostly, again, you're just seeing pyro going off. And I just didn't buy most of the time that there was any real cannon fire going off. Sometimes in the distant shots, when the explosions were big enough, it looked realistic. But in terms of the impact on the troops, again, this goes back to the gore. It just never really seems to impact anything. Like one guy will fall over. The other guys kind of got sprayed with dirt or mostly unaffected. And I'm like, there would be a ton of carnage going on from these artillery barrages. And that's one thing that I think is really missing. There's a couple of scenes where they obviously must have had in real life, they would have had a shrapnel shot or something loaded because troops were advancing and much closer. And there's Mm -hmm. one, there's one scene where there are five or six guys advancing towards one of these cannons. And I'm assuming the way they did it is they offset them so that from the profile, they look like they're going right for the cannon. When in reality, they must have been offset from the cannon because they fire that cannon right in front of them at point blank range. I mean, these guys were like no more than three yards away and it blows all of them back. And that was one of the most effective effects that I saw because I was like, oh, wow, that actually looked pretty real minus the whole being pulled back thing. But um, yeah, that was a problem I had with a lot of this cannon fire is just none of it really feels very accurate or like a real threat. It feels like a film. I think the most accurate thing with the cannons, and this had me absolutely just tickled pink, was when Longstreet is talking to the the commander of the cannons. I can't remember what his name was. Is there a specific rank? And how that guy yelled everything, even if he didn't have to. 
Like right. no cannons firing. And this guy's still like, what? What'd you say, sir? Like <laughs> hilarious to I, me. That guy good. had me in fucking stitches. And I'm like, that yeah, that's great. Tr- I'm sure that that's like, you want me to do what with the cannons? Like just. He's deaf as hell already. Oh, totally. Yeah. I didn't even think about earplugs. I guess at the time you might've seen someone with like, cotton in their ears maybe uh, hopefully because man yeah firing a cannon all day is definitely going to make you completely deaf forever that had me right? dying i was that just was the funniest thing to me love that guy so i have a question about the second day did i fall asleep while i was watching this i can't answer that question yeah, well did they Probably show not. okay so day two they showed Little Round Top. Yep. Yep. That's when it happened. They talked about the Devil's Den. Mm-hmm. But we didn't like see the Devil's Den, right? We didn't see the peach orchard. I don't remember seeing a peach orchard. The, we didn't really see the wheat field. I don't think so. I think they they choose to mainly focus on the Little Round Top aspect of it. And I think all of that is kind of happening. Around the same time or like on the way to Little Round Top. Yeah, concurrently. Because those those places all had like names that are remembered. Yep. You have a place called the Devil's Den that was apparently just like an absolute slaughter. Oh, it was so bad. Oh. And you're not going to show that part. I want to touch on this now. I'm I'm foreshadowing our later discussion that I know is going to happen. This film is very into the Confederate side and perspective. Very. And they show a lot of heroic efforts by the Confederacy, but not so much by the Union. Because the Devil's Den and um, the Peach Orchard and stuff like that, the wheat field, like all of that was just a horrific, difficult slaughter. And maybe that had something to do with it. They were like, "Eh, even we can't fake the fact that all these men aren't, you know... We could cut away from on the hill, but if we're in the peach orchard and we're on a, a flat ground, it's a lot harder to convince people that, you know, these men are dying a horrific death. So I think that they really choose carefully what they're going to talk about in this film. And it feels very uneven in how they cover both the Union and the Confederacy. Yeah, and while in general... Most of the characters in this film are officers, especially the mm-hmm. generals. Like the vast majority of the characters here are colonels or above discussing, you know, strategy and colonels and above kind of shit. Right. Right. With the exception of, you know, the 120 guys that come down from Maine, et cetera. But, you know, occasionally you get to hear enlisted men speak and give their opinion. But really, this film is not about the common soldier. And I think, especially. Especially on the Confederate side, it's really like the quote-unquote gentlemen or the land and slave owners here are the only important people whose side is shown whatsoever. Correct. Which is a shame because there are, you know, somewhere around 70,000 other men on their side who kept journals and diaries and, you know, there's plenty of historical record of finding stories of these people that they could have thrown in the film and they really don't. Yeah. And when you read about the making of the film, there was a lot of effort from several actors to sort of 
endear the troops to them and to really take this character of military leadership and being the general quote unquote and take it seriously and be in character a lot. Sam Elliott famously stayed in character most of the time. And when just walking through the set would return salutes and address people by rank and just pretend like the cameras were rolling, which is a super smart thing to do. We talk about this all the time with war films because if you're going to build this sense of camaraderie and really get this feeling of how things would have been more so than in a lot of other settings, trying to just act like the military rank and all those things are real all the time makes a lot of sense. And so acting like Martin Sheen is really Lee. I think when they stroll into Gettysburg and they're getting a really good reception from people there and there's a moment where Lee is kind of walk or he's on his horse shaking hands and everyone's chanting Lee, Lee, Lee. So that was actually a moment that some of the cast had organized to thank Martin Sheen for his work. And so that crowd were the actual reenactors yelling Sheen, Sheen, because they wanted to show their appreciation for Martin Sheen. And they just dubbed it over with Lee Lee because the scene looked so good that they were like, oh, this is actually works really well in terms of showing this yes. general who was pretty famously beloved by his troops. That was a, kind of a nice moment of serendipity there. Well, and Jeff Daniels talked about how um, even when he was, how did he put it? On set in a tank top drinking a Diet Coke, <laughs> he would have reenactors walk past him and salute him and say, you know, sir. And he was, he said that initially his reaction was like, get the fuck out of here. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? This is dumb. But then. Nerds. Exactly. As he got to know. And I think there was probably, a, I, I highly doubt that he was heavily involved in the reenactment scene before then. So I'd be willing to bet he initially thought it's like, Ugh, I'm not my role. I'm Jeff Daniels. I'm just a regular dude. Like how people can get about about dealing with actors and he eventually came to realize that they were doing it because of their dedication to the reenactment. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, wasn't about, Oh, you're a big Hollywood film star and I have to be respectful. It was like, well, now I'm in the role of being, you know, whoever I've decided to be for my reenactment persona. And I'm going to act that to the nines. And he said that it did eventually help him in scenes like I just like I talked about earlier with uh, giving the speech to uh, the deserters and all of that. And he realized how he needed to connect with these people mm -hmm. in order to give the best performance mm -hmm. he could and get the best performance out of them that he could get. And I'm sure that was a common occurrence that these reenactors who while we can crap on them a little bit for them being too old or overweight for the parts. They're just regular dudes, though. They're just regular people, and you can't really hit them on... Like They certainly have heart and have passion for what they're doing. And so, oh, if yeah. nothing else, like they may have not known how to act better because they're not actors, but what Katie's saying is very true and probably spread out throughout the production. So, those reenactors probably made the real actors better at their job because they really bought into the whole they're larping <laughs> don't tell them that yeah it kind of turned everyone into a method actor they are larping and that is what a good larp does is everybody gets into it to make it as real as possible so i used to work for a rental car company we'll call it schmenterprise schmental car <laughs> just to keep names okay. you know just to change the names to to protect the innocent. Like Bobber G. Wee. Yeah. <laughs> as I as I called him earlier. So 
there is an SCA gathering that happens in Butler County, north of Pittsburgh, every year. And it lasts for like two weeks. Hold on. Is SCA different from CSA? Have I been? Yes. SCA is the Society for Creative Anachronism. These are the guys that put on armor and beat the fuck out of each other with swords. Think Renfest, but LARPing. And and more violent. Very violent. People who spend ridiculous amounts of money. One of my one of my friends who passed away recently was super into the SCA and had been for years. He was a baron. You know, and I and I have had friends who were in the SCA. My costume designer in college had been in the SCA so long that he would go to to the gatherings and his membership card they thought was fake because it was missing a digit. That's awesome. Like he's been in it for a long time. But so one of these guys from the SCA, his car broke down and he had to get a rental car. And so I sent my driver, who's a very nice Yenzer, out to pick this guy up. And the guy came back in full regalia. What was he? Was he a knight? He was, a knight. was he like a He came back an, oh, in his oh armor God. to get his oh rental car. And my driver, very awkward interaction it was an awkward 20 minute drive back to the to the office with him because schmenterprise will schmick you up and drove him back to the office and he's just driving real quiet and so he says so uh yin's larping in that <laughs> <laughs> and this dude proceeded to lose his shit on him in the car and explained oh, to they him do not like that how they are not LARPers, that this is the SCA and what they do is very serious. It's a historical reenactment. This is just like laid into my driver for a long time. I'm picturing him with his face shield down the whole time. So it's literally like just like a knight behind a metal sheet, just like talking to him about SCA. Just, I died. I died. I'm an avid cosplayer. So I have. No, no respect for people who try to shit on LARPing. I'm like, whatever. Who fucking cares? It, it live action role playing. Are you pretending to be another person? Well, yeah, but then you have like the people that are walking around an actual town playing Vampire the Masquerade with their arms and a cross in front of them. And you're like, what are you doing? And they're like, shh, I'm invisible. You can't see me. And it's like, I fucking can. Yes, I can. That's where that's where we draw the line between sanity and LARPing. Yeah, this is where you make exceptions on bullying where like if someone beats them up, you're like, yeah, it's, it's okay. I understand. I, I want to beat them up too. No, no, I wouldn't do that. I would say, oh, honey, I'm glad you found something that keeps you busy. You're a nicer person than I am, Katie. I have, well, I've also known more than one Vampire the Masquerade player, like my friend who was very, very, very heavily involved in the SCA. Um, shout out to Foro for anybody who may be listening who knew him. I have no problems with that stuff, but I do think it's a little bit silly when people are like, it's different. I'm like, it's not different. (laughs) It's the same fucking thing. You're just better at it. Dave's going to be screaming at himself in this part because I know he's involved with some swordsman type stuff. No, he's involved with with, it. He trains with it like a martial, like it's a martial art. Like medieval fighting. Yeah, like I know Dave's a for real dude, but I'm just saying, I'm sure he has opinions about 
all of this. Oh no, <laughs> I'm sure he has a lot of opinions about LARPers. But well, I for those who may be offended right now at my use of the phrase LARP to describe your activities, get over it. It's <laughs> Don't fine. Don't be such a nerd. It's fine. If Liam can call me a weeb, you are a weeb. And I can let it, and I can let it go. You can get over being called a LARPer. You're like because- Robert Weeb Lee. So first of all, a, a quick disclaimer for anybody who is a really big Civil War buff and is really into this history. Just a reminder, we are not necessarily history buffs. We all enjoy it. We love reading it. We do read all this research. But if we didn't talk enough about Civil War history, don't be disappointed. This is a war film podcast. So we're here mostly to talk about the filmmaking as a priority. But we try and throw as much of this in here as we can. I will put all the research as usual into the surplus ordinance. And I'm sure some of you guys and gals who are more knowledgeable about this can write in and give us inaccuracies or give us your opinions. That's what the Facebook group is for. Search uh, Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group on Facebook, and you can find lots of people knowledgeable about weapons and history, etc. on there. So please do that. But in the meantime, before we get into our breakdown, I was just going to ask to kind of have a positive note. What were some of you guys's favorite performances of or favorite moments in the films because while inevitably we're going to talk about the things this film gets wrong there are also several good actors and several good performances i think liam what what about you so one of the things that i really enjoy about this film is sam elliott i think sam elliott is great as buford and i think and he gets so little time he does but again he you does everything with it you didn't watch the extended version i, I think there's oh you did i did i feel like I think we all did <laughs> i think there's more sam elliott in the extended there's more but percentage wise it's probably the same amount i i would say it's maybe five minutes ten minutes out of a four plus hour movie no he's the focus for like 20 minutes there mm-hmm, in the beginning mm-hmm. It's the most interesting bit. It is. Well, I also like the fact that Buford gets that amount of play because, you know, and I, this is one of those things again, like this is a movie you watched with your dad. I remember my dad, who is a huge history buff telling me he was like, Buford essentially saved the world that day. He's not wrong. He's, he's not, you know, and it's like the world as we know it. Yeah, exactly. Like everything. The the country that we lived in would have been a very different place if Buford had not gone the Obi-Wan Kenobi route and held the high ground. So it was nice seeing that that amount of credit go where it was due. And the extended edition for all of its length, I think, does give a little bit extra to Sam Elliott that is is worth the extra 20 minutes of of runtime. By the way, he's been trying to get a movie made, I think probably with him starring, but about Buford ever since has been unsuccessful so far. But I would watch that movie. That's a shame because that would have been great. Another thing, this is like not necessarily like a strength of the movie necessarily, but like a favorite part of mine is uh, when Jeb Stewart finally shows up. And Which beard is he? He's uh, he's the. <laughs> It's the perfect way to identify people in this He's film. He's the beard with the big mustache to go with it. <laughs> Tell me the shape of his beard. The handlebar? Yeah, the hand, well, it's the handlebars plus the long street beard. 
Like if Longstreet had like a big mustache. Okay, so he's got the mutton chops, the the handlebar and everything. Okay. But honestly, like when he came in, I was like, he kind of looks like David Cross's Tobias Funke in a fake beard. Like that's <gasps> how bad that beard was. Oh my God. I know exactly which character you're talking about right? now, just from that description. <laughs> Doesn't it just look like my name is Dr. Tobias Funke and this is I'm a bad, bad man from Annie Get Your Gun. There are dozens of <laughs> <There's> us. Dozens. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I love that scene where he comes in. He's like, hey, I got these wagons for you. And like Lee is just had he's having none of it because <laughs> Jeb Stewart fucked him. I've always been curious about was Jeb Stewart just being a, a showboating piece of shit like this movie implies or were there reasons did he fuck up or was he unlucky as to why he was not in communication with general lee for eight days leading up to the battle right. oh it was eight i didn't realize it was eight days it was eight days and it's that's crazy here's the beautiful thing it's both he was unlucky and he was a piece of shit. He got permission from General Lee to ride around to the east of the Union Army. To ride around and meet him up in Pennsylvania. Up near like Carlisle. And he gave him this permission because he'd done it like twice before this. Where he like rides around the Union position. Gets a shitload of intelligence to bring back. Where the army is. The size. What roads they're using. Shit like that. And then meets back up with him. And previously he'd been gone like three or four days. So Lee had actually, he hadn't intended to stop in Gettysburg. He had intended to draw the Union Army up towards Harrisburg. And then like, as the Union Army was coming up to stop him, picking them off one by like little bit by little bit while they're all stretched out. But things didn't go exactly the way they were supposed to, and his army ended up getting stretched out, and he had to bring them all back towards Gettysburg. So Jeb Stewart, first of all, like goes up to Pennsylvania. On his way, he does capture a wagon train of supplies. So that slows him down, because instead of moving at the speed of a cavalry, he's moving with the speed of a wagon train. So he gets up to Carlisle, Pennsylvania and can't find the army because they're not where they were supposed to be, where he was supposed to meet them, meet up with them. So he's basically following word of mouth to where the army is going to be. Now, he took three brigades of cavalry with him. He had under his command seven brigades. So he had three with him, leaving four to be done something with like the, the, what you would do with the cavalry. The two brigades were regulars, just normal soldiers who were experienced with combat, always attached to the army. You mean infantry? Yeah, it was, it was cavalry, but yeah, they were were regulars. The other two were irregulars. They weren't battle proven and Lee didn't trust them. So, he, he didn't trust them. They weren't battle proven. He wouldn't use them as he would a, a more veteran group. So Jeb Stewart assigns the two brigades of irregulars to Lee. They're like, you go with Lee. The other two, you guys stay back in Virginia and guard the, the flow of materials. Guard the supply lines. That is straight caddy. And I'm here for it. It actually was straight caddy. And do you know why? 
because the two commanders of the regulars, one was named Grumble Jones. Seriously? Yes. <laughs> Grumble, William E. Grumble Jones. Sounds like a Sesame Street character. And the, it no. does. The other name is Beverly Robertson. Okay, it's not quite as good, but good God, that first one is just a name out of the musical Cats. <laughs> Grumble Jones, no! We just had a baby. What are we going to name him? Grumble. <laughs> he must have been a terrible baby. Grumble Jones and Jeb Stewart, they hated each other. Jeb Stewart tried to prevent him from getting promoted and like Lee overrode him. And was like, no, he's qualified. Oh we need him. Like, put him in. What's wrong with you? And so before they marched out to, like, do the march towards Pennsylvania, they did a big review, like, where all of the soldiers were marching past Lee. Lee was, like, the guest of honor. And they did this whole big review. And Grumble Jones's unit was the last one. And so to stick it to Jeb Stewart, he told his men when they got, when they got finished, at ease, off your horses, everybody lay down. And they just like laid down on the parade ground and Lee was like, looks at Jeb Stewart and is like, what the hell's going on? And Jeb Stewart's like, I, I don't know, sir. And so he basically just made Jeb Stewart look like an asshole in front of Lee. And so Jeb Stewart was still mad at him for that. Beverly Robertson. And Beverly is a man, correct? Beverly is a man. Very much so. Beverly Robertson was engaged to... Stewart's wife before they met. Her name was Flora Cook. But yeah, I think she was, they were from Pennsylvania. But so Beverly Robertson used to be engaged to Jeb Stewart's wife. And Grumble Jones had beef <laughs> with, with Jeb Stewart. So he was like, well, fuck you guys. You guys, you're gonna you're gonna go guard the supply trains. You're not going to get involved with the glory of destroying the Northern Army in Gettysburg. Like, none of that's for you. And so Lee didn't have the people that he would have used as cavalry with him because Jeb Stewart was an asshole. Wow. Ah, okay. That makes more sense. So it was both. He was unlucky and he was a dick. Well, that shit happens. Total D-bag. Haiti. You want to give me your favorite? Beat Grumble Jones. So, Keys von Ustrom was the cinematographer for this. And I feel like some of the cinematography in this is great. But I think it might be circumstantial. <clears throat> and I think this because in one of the interviews I read with uh, one of the reenactors who he, he gets a couple of lines, he's like, cocky lieutenant or something and he talks about that final scene between chamberlain and his brother and he says yes that sunset was real i was like okay so because if you get you know an amazing golden hour sunset it's pretty easy to make good cinematography Mm. if you have a beautiful untouched field which having been there the national park of gettysburg is fairly untouched. Like you can walk through it. It's an amazing visit. And I went there when I was like seven and it still had an impression on me. That was the weird thing is I was watching this film and I was, I, I didn't 
necessarily go in with any expectations. But when I saw the cinematography, I was like, all right, this is pretty, this is pretty decent in the first few minutes. And then it really goes like, it, it is up and down with the, the highest of highs and then the lowest of lows, because there are a couple scenes that just look amazing. And then there are a couple scenes where you're like, did you film this with a PBS All Access camera? Because that's about what it looks like. But those good scenes, like that final scene with the brothers and the sunset and all that, you can't, I mean, you can, and Liam probably will. I couldn't fault them for being ugly. Oh, yeah, I could. Or unenjoyable because of the cinematography. The music in the compositions, not necessarily how they're performed in this film, but the compositions themselves are not bad. But good God, they are not used well. You had some good work. And you squandered it in the weirdest way possible. So, which by the end of the movie, which again, almost four and a half hours, I was like, I will take whatever kind of entertainment I can. I would say about the halfway point after the little round top, I began to notice like, use of the music here is really weird. <laughs> and so it just became, <laughs> just became a point of fascination for me of like, Okay, they're having another speech. What music are they going to play during this? And of every single time, I was like, this isn't the right music. It's good music. It's well done. Well, it's like the uh, the fife and drum the fife and drum bit that they use when the Union Army is like chasing the Confederates through that field and it's like This does not match what I'm watching at all until that one command that one general gets shot and then the music gets all <laughs> and like you can hear the forced slow-mo happen yes as he like falls and it's just like uh, and it gets a little blurry it's a tonal just want to go on the record again i was trying to highlight the good parts of this film but here we are <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing wrong with the music itself. It's well done. It's well designed. I owned the score. It was the first CD I ever bought. And it would go really great with a Civil War film. It's just that it's used very poorly in this. And it becomes, for me, by the end, quite comical to the point where, like, I would wait and then burst into laughter when I would see this very serious speech being given and then triumphant music. And, like, this is, you did not triumph here. This where this goes. We've talked about the reenactment a lot. And I think the best part of the reenactment for me is how well it shows uh, how long things take. Yes, four and a half hours. To the detriment of the film, but you do get a sense in the best ways possible. During the scene the, the, where the Confederacy is charging up Little Round Top, and they are having these four different waves of Confederates coming at them. Like, it takes a while for that to happen. And we see the Confederates both from the, you know, superior angle and kind of from the side as they go up. And we get some idea of what it costs to do these things. So I thought that was all right. I was going to ask you guys and the audience in general, one thing that I was surprised by was how often I saw tons of soldiers about to get into close combat 
and I saw like maybe 10% of them had bayonets fixed. And I was like, this seems really weird, especially with old muskets that, you know, the best. That's like half your weapon right there. Right. And like the most proficient shot out there, I'm assuming was going to be able to put out maybe three well-placed rounds a minute, most likely two. And if you're doing anything like running or maneuvering or doing anything else, I think one a minute is probably more the standard. I'm sure someone can correct me on that. I did look it up a little bit, but you know, point being those weapons are pretty ineffective. So to not have a bayonet at the end of your rifle, if there's going to be any chance of close engagement, seems like a bad call just from a military tactical perspective. Were there some missing bayonets in the bayonet charge on Little Round Top? <laughs> but here's my question. Can you fire the gun with the bayonet yes. attached? Oh, 100%. Yes. And does it affect your accuracy? No. No. I don't I, I would No. Well, okay. again, someone someone with a little more specific knowledge can chime in, but bayonets in general including on modern rifles are designed to be attached to the rifle and 100% not get in the way of the shot. That's the whole purpose is to be able to shoot the rifle and have a bayonet. So yeah, you're definitely not just for the people who really don't know this. Like me, folks, to be clear. So you're not putting a bayonet on your rifle because you're out of rounds. And so you're like, well, might as well turn this into a more effective weapon. You're only doing it because the combat is coming to close range or you're going into combat where you're going to end up in close range. So if you're charging a trench in World War One, those soldiers are likely to have bayonets fixed. The command is fix bayonets, which you'll hear or you'll just hear someone yell bayonets. Now, granted, there is a weight to the bayonet. These are really long. So yes, uh, in an indirect way, it's going to weigh down the tip of the muzzle of your rifle. So I would imagine that in in a statistical sense, the amount of time you can stand and aim the rifle is slightly shorter with a bayonet because your rifle is heavier at the tip where it's going to bring it down over time. In terms of regular combat, I highly doubt that a bayonet affects a rifle in any kind of negative way, unless you're, again, doing prolonged standing fire. But again, I couldn't figure out if it was accurate Then, in a lot of these scenes, the soldiers don't have bayonets fixed yet. But then, of course, Chamberlain, played by Jeff Daniels, has this huge moment at Little Round Top where he yells bayonets. And it's a huge part of the story. Tough to have a bayonet charge without bayonets. And it's a huge part of the history. Exactly. So he was awarded the Medal of Honor apparently 30 years later, which is kind of strange, but at least they finally gave it to him in the 1890s. You can't have an impactful moment of the officer yelling bayonets and then everyone fixing bayonets if the bayonets were already fixed. So I feel like that was a narrative choice where they're like, we have to have this big moment. But I don't know if soldiers in that defensive position on the hill should have already had bayonets fixed or not. I don't know. So my, I did read a little bit about this. So my understanding is that that was a definitive choice that changed the outcome. And that's why he was awarded the Medal of Honor because it was not, it was a significant thing for him to do. It's not, it wasn't just standard that he decided we're putting our bayonets on and we're going down and we're going to sweep the hook. That was the biggest deal. I agree. But the reason he won the Medal of Honor is because while they were essentially out of ammo and they knew another charge was coming and he, Chamberlain knew his orders were do not let this flank break. They will outflank us. It'll change the outcome of the battle. 
And so when his officers are coming to him saying, sir, we're out of rounds or we're almost out of ammo. Right. It's not the decision to fix bayonets by itself. It's the decision to charge downhill and take advantage of the only advantage that they still had, which was the higher ground, which he mentions. So that was obviously an excellent tactical decision because you don't have any higher ground advantage if you're going to sit there with an unloaded musket and wait for the enemy to come to you. But if you're going to run downhill towards them and have momentum and make it harder for you to get hit and you're coming down the hill at whatever, seven, eight miles an hour with bayonets. And these things are super long too. Or like two miles an hour as we saw. Well, sure. If you're older (laughs) and fatter, but (laughs) so narratively, I like what they did there because it shows the impact of that decision. The more nitpicky question is just, you don't have to fix bayonets at the last minute to have a bayonet charge. You can have bayonets the whole time just in case close combat happens and then order the bayonet charge when it's time. So I am curious to hear from maybe Micah or maybe a civil war expert about the accuracy of that particular decision. Well, they also didn't have a whole lot of time is, is what it, it seemed to me because yeah. they had just got up there like 10 minutes before. This is what it looked like was they got there and this is not a movie that is worried about condensing events, but it looks like no. they got there had like a couple of minutes to be like, do not break this line. And that guy repeated that so many times mm-hmm. that I thought it was actually kind of funny that like Jeff Dean was like, nope, I got it. No, look at me. You can't let can't do you it. can't. It, it almost felt like an SNL skit where he's like, okay, I got it. And then like the guy like says the same thing, but in a different way, it's like, look, this is the end. You are the end of the union army. Okay. No, I understand. They can't go around you now, but Jeff Daniels <laughs> took it very seriously, but that just made me chuckle at it even more. It's one of the only instances I read about about Maxwell actually enforcing a line reading or coming in for direct directorial leadership or whatever you want to call it, where Jeff Daniels character calls out bayonets and Maxwell yelled at him. I need it. I need it more intense. I need it louder. I need it more intense. And right after he said that he delivered the line and that's the line that they used in the final cut of the film. So Mm -hmm. what's, maybe accurate, less accurate, whatever. I give them a lot of credit for trying to really impregnate that scene with the importance that it ended up having in the entire battle. And again, this is someone who won the Medal of Honor. So I I can appreciate why they tried to highlight all of that that led up to that charge down the hill. Jeff Daniels and Colonel Chamberlain, the character he plays, for me, were the high points of this film. I kind of take them as two separate things because Chamberlain was a fascinating individual all on his own, both before and after this. You know, the man went on to be the governor of Maine for three different. He was reelected twice. He was a president of a college. Before this, he was a professor like he was a fascinating individual in and of himself. But Jeff Daniels, I think, gives the most genuine performance throughout the film. He understands a lot of the gravitas and because he's part of the union, he is not tasked with the hero worship that this film visits upon a lot of the Confederate side. 
he's kind of allowed to put his own spin on it and make this man feel more down to earth and relatable. So I think that for me was the highlight of the film is watching Jeff Daniels. And it sucks because like the second half of the film has so little Jeff Daniels in it. And I know we're being positive, but I have to say I was really sad that Martin Sheen was not a character I could also care about. So I agree. Jeff Daniels was excellent, but I'd be remiss because I, I, I always forget about this part as being one of the positives of the movie because I hate him so much. <laughs> Stephen fucking Lang as Pickett is so good. He is really good. He's so he good. Is good. And it's such a genuine performance and he is in it and he is captivating. But he now he is also not burdened with the additional with with the additional uh, cross of hero worship because everybody agrees Pickett sucks. Yeah, exactly. He kind of gets to be the underdog where it's like, well, I'll just do my performance. Oh, man, he gets to chew into that as much as he likes. And Stephen Lang does a really, really great job as Pickett. Just a, a, a fascinating performance. And I love him for it. He is he's probably the best performance in the movie for me. I can see that, honestly. Jeff Daniels is the more obvious choice, but Stephen Lang gives the, the deeper performance, the more difficult performance. Dan, what did you like about this movie? So there's a couple of things I didn't get a chance to talk about, and I'm glad you guys brought up specific characters because Tom fucking Berenger as... Longstreet. Lieutenant General Longstreet. We talked about his beard already. He had some interesting outfit choices where I think famously he pissed off both the production and the reenactors by choosing to wear that like floppy, large sort of Calvary looking hat that apparently was totally inaccurate for his character. And when he met up at bars and did all the other stuff he did for camaraderie with his men, he wore the period appropriate hat. So it's like really strange that he made that choice to wear the inaccurate hat in the film. But whatever. Apparently, Tom Berenger had the clout. Got that big Behringer energy. <laughs> From everything I've read about Tom Behringer in general, seems like an all right, pretty stand-up dude. He looks like he's been drinking every day heavily since the 80s. But the way he approached this role of Longstreet, I really appreciated. Like when I was reading the trivia, he personally purchased and had swords engraved for all of I think, quote unquote, his men. So I'm assuming this isn't thousands of extras, but more like maybe his officers or something. But this is his own favorite role of his career. And, you know, beard issues aside, I do think that he portrays a real person. The beard issues are not his fault. Right. And again, we talked about the budget and all that. I hold nothing against him for the beard. <laughs> but I feel like Tom Berenger played a real person in Longstreet. He didn't seem like a glory hound. And he also seemed to have the military respect for General Lee that was due to him, but would also tell him when he thought things were a bad idea. And you see some of those conversations in the film. And I liked that about it. And in general, it's just, I feel like the level of heart and passion that Tom Berenger put into this role was no less than your best reenactors that were out there. I think he really enjoyed shooting this film. 
and really put a lot into it. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention a couple of Martin Sheen things. I will say that I agree with some of the reviews that I've read online that Martin Sheen also plays a nuanced character. Now, granted, I don't think he can escape the massive blown up myth of General Lee and all the controversy that comes with that. Was he a great tactician? Was he not? Was he one of the most beloved generals in history? Was he not? You know, when you're doing your research on your character, all of that stuff is going to be there. But I do think that he did a good job of showing stoicism and frustration and pride and pragmatism all at once and in several different lines, but he would switch. You could see him play out a lot of emotions on a pretty stoic man, which I think is probably an accurate portrayal of Lee when it comes down to that particular character trait. I will say that sometimes it's the editing of this film or just the camera choice or whatever that really just throws things in a different direction. And there's a scene, uh, I think we're in there getting to Gettysburg and Lee is marching on his horse and an officer's giving him the spiel and updating him on probably, I think the status of the cavalry unit, I think maybe. And the conversation is somewhere along the lines of, you know, if we can win this battle, we have a good shot at winning the war. And Martin Sheen has a moment where he looks up and closes his eyes and then you hear him say, God willing. And I had to rewind that scene because I was like, wait, did they just do what I think they did? And sure enough, his mouth wasn't moving. It was his thought slash prayer that delivered that line, <laughs> which not being a somber moment of prayer and just being thrown into the rest of the scene in the action, just Robert E. Lee offers thoughts and prayers. <laughs> it was so funny like i just could not believe that scene and had to rewound it and it just cracked me the hell up there's lots more i could say about sheen but i know we have to get to our breakdown but let me just give you my favorite bit of trivia from the entire very long list of trivia on this film during the atlanta premiere martin sheen was increasingly annoyed by an audience member seated behind him who offered a running commentary of the film's characters and what was about to happen when the lights came on for intermission, Sheen turned to confront the person and realized it was former president Jimmy Carter. <laughs> I'm just like, what a more perfect person to be super knowledgeable about the Civil War in American history, but also the one person that you want to turn around and like throw your popcorn in his face and you can't because it's not only a former president with a secret service attachment probably sitting next to him but also like arguably one of the nicest kindest people on earth it is like the mr rogers of u.s <laughs> yeah, presidents definitely you're like well, i can't i can't be mad at that guy it's like the one and only mr rogers u.s president <laughs> he was just building a house for habitat for humanity right before the premiere so like he's just commenting and like he's old at that point already just what do you do you turn around and then you just smile and you shake his hand Oh, Jimmy Carter. Glad you're still with us. Yeah. Uh, despite the fact that they are hampered by poor editing choices and a score that, while the score itself is not bad, is being layered on way too heavy, I think Jeff Daniels and Tom Berenger and Sam Elliott really brought their A game to this film, and I really appreciate that. I think now it's time for a breakdown, where we talk about what the objective of this film was whether it was on target or not, 
and did we like it? Today, I'm going to start with Liam. The objective of this movie is, you know, you, you can get a lot of opinions running around about the, to put it in the most nefarious terms, the agenda of the filmmaker really sort of propping up these lost cause myths and the heroic statures of, of the Confederate generals Lee in particular, but I don't actually think it's intentional. I think the objective of this movie is very 1993. And, you know, we've talked before about, how we had a, a a very false sense of ourselves and our society in the nineties that we corrected most of the problems and that, you know, we could sort of move forward from, from the, the tangled ugliness of our history. And that's really the point of view that this movie is coming from not realizing then that we really had not grappled with 90% of our history. This is the Robert E. Lee that people have strong feelings about taking his statue down. This is the, the Confederate George Washington. This is, this is the, the South's grandpa. Don't say anything bad about Robert E. Lee. And the, the biggest problem is that you, the idea here, the objective was to make an apolitical movie about the Civil War. It didn't want to have an agenda. It wanted to go, go in and tell some history without muddying itself in the, the politics of it. And then it turns out you can't make an apolitical film if you're a human because you have political ideas. Not even just that. It's that it's impossible to make an apolitical film about the Civil War. Yeah, about any war. But particularly in America, you cannot make an apolitical film about the Civil War because if you do so, it is political. It is a political choice that you have made. You are ignoring at best, if not trying to cover up a large and ugly part of this nation's founding and its history that its roots are so deep and its tentacles are so far reaching that we are not free of it today. And we probably will never be this movie lacks that understanding. And so in just trying to present some history without any politics to it or without anything that's going to upset anybody, Dan made the point earlier that like, there's not even any blood in this thing. Mm -hmm. It's really a, an attempt to make a non-upsetting Civil War movie. And you, you just can't do that. Did I like it? Like I said before, I love this movie when I'm not watching it. It's not a fun watch. I have warm feelings for it. But then you got to sit through, like, not to speak ill of, of, of the dead, but Richard Jordan, mm. who played Brigadier General Lewis Lowell Armistead. Yep. Oh, which is a great performance, though, right? So the performance was good, but Jesus fucking Christ, like, is this guy going to stop and talk about his friend on the other side of the battlefield with literally anybody who stands still for two seconds? Like, everybody he speaks to in this movie 
has to hear the goddamn story about his friend who he loved like a brother and how he had a very fine wife. I understand that like these two people were like, it's supposed to be real. Like they had this friendship. One thing I said, it's like they had a friendship. They were closer than, than the Chamberlain brothers. And I'm like, how the fuck do you know that? Right. What are you talking about? That got an awful lot of focus in this movie and the performance was good and he did a good job with it. But God, man, that just was not enjoyable to watch that scene happen over and over. Like I got to the point where I was tired of looking at that character because I was tired of having that scene played over and over and over again. You didn't need to hear the story 30 times. No, I didn't need to hear the story 30 times. I also really didn't want to see him huffing and puffing his way up the hill with his hat on his sword, like wheezing Virginia. Virginians! Virginians! With me! Who will come with me? Virginia! Like it was it was not like he has like three Virginia moments. Yeah, it's like <laughs> it, it it honestly it felt like the scene in Animal House when Belushi like tries to give them the rousing speech and then like runs out of the room and nobody goes with him. So he has to like come back and get them. Like it felt like that a little bit where it's just like, let's go. And then it's just like, everybody's just sort of like trucking along behind him. But I I don't mean to trivialize it except I kind of do, but I don't mean to trivialize it, but it was just, it's not a good movie. It might be a historical representation of it, uh, of what happened. But, dude, I don't need to see every foot of the mile and a half march up that hill. That's bad film. So that's that's my... That's your take? That's my take on it. Excellent. Hard to disagree with it. Katie? So as I watched this film, I took copious amounts of notes. And in the last 45 minutes or so, I was thinking about how I wanted to have this specific dialogue. And I want to say I completely agree with everything Liam said about the civil rights and all of that aspect of it. Like, all of that is totally 100% accurate. But for me, I was coming at it from a filmic perspective of like, this isn't really a movie, but it's kind of a movie. (laughs) But it's like half a movie, actually. And I had two simultaneous reactions to it. So... When I think about this as a movie, it's it's very bad. There's there's no story. We don't get enough time with any one character to really connect with them, to take us through and give us an emotional beginning and end point. Chamberlain is pretty close to that, but it does not stick with him enough in that last third of the film to really bear that out. It goes into an amount of detail that no actual movie ever would, because if you can actually tell a story, you do not need to go into that depth. You can tell this story with so much less footage, and yet they chose to. And then there's the perspective of me that looks at this as a filmed reenactment, as though it's like... If you wanted to put this in, in Ken Burns' Civil War documentary episode, as, like, the uh, the reenactments, it would be perfect. 
you could do that. You could make a great documentary using this footage to illustrate different points and show techniques and uh, strategy and all of that. It would be great as that, especially because it's bloodless, because having watched far too many documentaries about war, most of them are because they're not going to spend the money on squibs and mm-hmm. fake blood and all that shit. Right. And so this works really, really well as that. A dramatic reenactment. Well, it works. No, it works well as a reenactment. A dramatic reenactment. It gets the drama all wrong. It's trying so hard to blend the idea of being a film and a reenactment that it misses both. Because if you are making a film, you have to have, like I said before, some kind of artifice. You have to have a story that you can draw the audience in and relay your narrative with. And if you're doing a reenactment or a documentary or something, like you you just need to have those specific and accurate set pieces. And so this film really tries to have both in that it has these overly long and drawn out set pieces with these really ham handed dramatic speeches that all of which I I believe almost all of them come from the book that this is based on. Yeah. I think this is the the whole thing is almost entirely from the book word for word. Most, but this is a, the book that it's based on is a novel and in a novel, those speeches could totally work. Because you can get the interior of what these men are thinking. You can get so much more detail in it. So I can see how as a novel, this kind of story would really work. But as a film, it just falls really, really flat. So, you know, I think it tries to do too many things with too small a budget and fails at all of it. Unfortunately, I mean, you can appreciate those specific bits, but if you tried to look at this as a, you know, an epic movie, unless you're a huge civil civil war buff, you're not going to be satisfied with what you get. So that's what it tried to do and it failed. (laughs) Did did, Did I like it? No, no, I was for me, I, I, I wanted to like this film because like, I love Ken Burns. I love documentaries. Like that kind of shit is my bread and butter. I've been watching it since I was a kid. But this just feels so performative and fake that I was never able to connect with it, especially because it spends so much time with speeches. I was not joking when I said there were that many speeches like, There's at least 10 and you only get two in a movie before it becomes overkill. And Jeff Daniels is like one of the better ones, like his and Buford's. And they're both in like the first 30 minutes of the movie. I'm like, where are you going to go from here? Right. And you could maybe get one with Lee, you know, and then this film idolizes Robert E. Lee to the point that is kind of upsetting. In that the the folks at the time would absolutely, like his soldiers would absolutely thought that he was as amazing as this film portrays. Because he had led them to victory after victory after victory before Gettysburg. But 
for a film that is made now to portray him in such a heroic and uncritical light when you are claiming to have accuracy and authenticity is a sincere and uh, deliberate failing on the part of the filmmakers. Just so I know, when was the last time that you watched Ken Burns' Civil War documentary? Because that was what, 91? I watched it when it came out, and I've watched it at least once since then. Probably in my early 20s when I was a single mom. Because, honest to God, I think it was just the 90s. The Civil War documentary treats Robert E. Lee with those probably even more kid gloves. It does. It talks about how he detested slavery and only fought against his country because his his statement more his statement more to him and like it isn't until very very recent history that anybody has really gone back to look with a critical eye towards Robert E Lee. Agreed, but my point more so to clarify, my point more is that when we get to the end of this film, there are no fewer than 3 scenes where Robert E. Lee is riding his horse and there is triumphant music playing. There's a scene which half of it actually happened, by the way. I had a convo with my dad, who's super into the Civil War, right before this podcast. The scene where Robert E. Lee is muttering to himself, this was my fault. I can't believe I let this happen. That is recorded in history and actually happened. His men telling him, no, you were great. No. And uh, that's all bullshit. Mm. That didn't happen, which makes it more poignant that Lee wasn't trying to gain some kind of respect. He was just reflecting on the fact that like, so this film does everything in its power to really alleviate Lee of any kind of responsibility for the actions that he took in some ways. And I find that incredibly frustrating so i did not like this movie and i will never watch it again or anything by ron maxwell so for those until of you, we do gods and generals nope not no happening. i will for quit those of you who are really hoping we were doing gods and generals but it's all stephen lang we're not. it's like all stephen lang and then like a little bit of a little bit of fat jeff daniels No, as a really, and here's the thing, Stephen Lang portrays Stonewall Jackson, and it's a really shitty, inaccurate depiction of who Stonewall Jackson was. So no. So no. That's all I'm going to say. Dan, (laughs) what'd you think? I think I'm 90% on board with everything you guys said. I think the objective here was to make the most accurate Civil War film ever. I think that's what the director went into this with was it on target no i think this fails overall as i've already described a little bit but i'll go into it further in my breakdown yes please did i like it no (laughs) the good parts of this film are not long enough and are not a big enough percentage of the movie for me to be like okay i'll sit through these four and a half hours just for the jeff daniel speech or just for watching Sam Elliott's mustache move up and down while he talks like it's just not enough. And again, if there's one thing this movie needed more of, it was Jeff Daniels and Sam Elliott, in my opinion. So I feel like the director took some of the strongest 
points characters in the film and didn't use them enough. Here are some of the details of why I think that. Yeah, I'll never watch this again. I'm glad I put myself through the director's cut. want to make sure there's no, no stone was left unturned since we were sitting down to watch it and it was going to be four hours no matter what. I think the main flaw here, which you guys mentioned, there's two things. One is this film is doing a poor job of taking advantage of its medium. It's part book, part war reenactment, part movie, part TV series. It doesn't have the budget to do any single one of those things well, most likely. But it, again, pulling from the novel and most of the script and dialogue coming straight from the novel, I think you guys mentioned how some of those things might work well in a book, but they just don't work here. The most unforgiving aspects of it are, like I explained before, the lack of gore, the lack of blood and gore, which I'm not one for gratuitous violence at all. Violence doesn't excite me. I'm I'm pretty neutral towards it. Like when it fits a film, I want to see it and it has to be done tastefully, etc. But when you're talking about war, the horror of it is an important aspect of the realism and an important aspect of the storytelling. When you're talking about the battle where most Americans have died ever in the war where most Americans have died ever, because of course every single person who died in this war was an American, it really is doing it a disservice when you hardly show any blood. You know, there's a couple of exceptions. The Irishman who's losing his arm. Especially, I love that line. He's my favorite character. And and when the doctor looks at, I forget who's coming in, whether it, I think it's Jeff Daniels' character, the doctor looks at him and says, it's an arm. I was like, oh, that's a cool way to say that, you know? So, like, there there are little moments here and there where the gore, or at least the idea of the gore, is used effectively, but way not enough. Again, we discussed kind of what they could have done more graphically before, uh, and it really was missing some of those things that we haven't done Saving Private Ryan yet, and I know Dave has pointed out some of the inaccuracies of the D-Day landing, but the effect that the gore has on the viewer in that scene is super impactful and hard to argue against. It's those types of scenes that can get, you know, your fat ass sitting in a chair as close to what the men in this situation actually experience. You can never get it 100%. It's a movie. But you can get a lot closer than this. And so that was a huge drawback for me. I watched a few interviews of Maxwell, and it's like he seems to be all philosophy and idealism about how you should have this passion and the, you know, the movie should take you places that you don't know it's going to take you and all that. And that's all well and good. But his technical and artistic ability just doesn't hold a candle to any of that idealism. And so I agree with Liam that overall the cinematography in this film is uninventive, boring, something that we've seen a lot, and just doesn't do anything creatively. I don't see any artistry in the way they set up these cameras and the way they set up the shots. The one place where maybe this movie could have been saved, the editing room, where they should have cut probably two hours of this film at least to tighten things up they didn't do that so a lot of these scenes of you know armistead with the sword yelling virginia and walking in front of his men again you can't do it in real time reenactment it takes forever 
So a, a lot more aggressive cutting and editing, I think, would have helped this movie out a lot. And they didn't do that. And then really, it's like they tried to focus on a few people, but those people are all land-owning, educated generals. Very rarely does the movie ever show you a glimpse into the average American that was in these battles. There's a couple of moments here and there, but it's really limited. And I feel like when you read about the Civil War, there are so many moments of, like, literally stories of people knowing that they're going into combat and their cousins or sometimes their brothers are somewhere in that other army. And I think there are probably actual stories of brothers facing off against each other in the Civil War, literally. I don't know how many of those they are because that's a lot of coincidence, but I'm saying even just the psychological possibility that you could be killing a member of your family in those battles is really impactful. And while I get that when they show that, they try to show that with Armistead and the other general who's his friend. It was uh, Hancock, I think. Was it Hancock? It was Hancock, yep. It's overwrought and again is like this idealistic, but it because it's also sort of that chivalry, like, oh, tell him I send my regrets. It's like, he didn't even have to be friends with him to say that. That could just be Southern chivalry of the time and officers acting like officers with one another. But you really don't get that very specific thing to a civil war, but more importantly, our American civil war of these people who were fighting in their own backyards and were fighting against people that they might have known. And that's something that we're just not familiar with, you know? It's easy to make an unknown other out of the enemy when the enemy is in a foreign country 3,000 miles away. This is a very different and specific type of fighting that we haven't seen since and hopefully will not see again in this country. Well, and then also you have the the few times that you do have like one of the regular Joes say anything. It's like, why can't we just live and let live? You live how you want to live and we live how we want to live. It's like that kind of clangs in 2021. Uh-huh. Fighting for, I, like, I like that they took an opportunity, though, for him to be like, fight for my rats. And Chamberlain's like, you what? Like, what? <laughs> like, even the other dude from 1863 couldn't understand what the hell that guy was saying. I appreciated that line. I'm sorry, did you say your rats? Why are we fighting for your rats? Now, I'm going to have a hot take moment here. <gasps> and the difficult part is... I'm going to ask you guys to not respond to it because we don't have time and we have to close this episode, but I am, I'm not saying my point is ultimate or final. I'm just saying I want the audience to kind of take both of our points and see what discussion comes up because we'll have time to talk about this more like in our group. I get that the discussion about the lost cause and where slavery and where racism or, you know, white supremacy come into this et cetera, et cetera. Like, I understand that whole conversation. I certainly think it's an important conversation to have, even though we don't have time to do it here on the podcast. I don't necessarily think that showing Lee the way that they did, whether accurate or inaccurate, is like doing a disservice to things because this is a military film about a battle and about military combat and Lee, while being an important general, is not necessarily a politician. So I'm not saying there is no place to touch on those ideas in a film like this, but I'm not necessarily going to fault the film for not doing it in this particular film. Now, I've seen some reviews of Gods and Generals where I think that the 
favoring the South lost cause. We're just fighting for states' rights. And this has nothing to do with slavery concept is pushed way harder. And the cinematography in that is, you know, zooming in on the Confederate flag and and doing the heroic music even more so. I think there was an attempt to tell this story in a neutral way. I'm not saying it was successful at being completely neutral. I'm just saying just because you don't get into those discussions doesn't necessarily make the film inaccurate because there might not be the scope for it in the film that you are making about the battle. That's all I'm saying. Again, I'm not saying it's necessarily an accurate portrayal of Lee, nor that that discussion isn't important to have. I'm not, I'm just saying it doesn't necessarily belong in every film that you're doing about a battle like this or about Lee. So I'm going to leave it up in the air. I'm not saying you guys are wrong or that I'm right. I'm just saying that's a, there's a further question to be asked there in that discussion. And again, I think we can continue that discussion online because it certainly is interesting. I also was born and raised somewhere else in Europe. So I'm not as entrenched on these ideas about the civil war. I didn't grow up learning about in elementary school. So I'm, it's like a, it's like a newer concept for me to think about. Obviously I've thought about slavery and I've thought about the background of the U S and our past, et cetera, for sure. But yeah, I'm happy to continue that discussion online with everyone. It's okay. This movie was basically made off of an elementary school textbook. Fair enough. A Georgia elementary school textbook <laughs> or no, 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 no. A Virginia elementary school textbook. There you go. So that's all I have to say for today. But thanks everyone for joining us. Uh, again, I mentioned the Facebook group earlier. If you want to jump in on some of these discussions and share, you know, videos, posts, interviews, etc., we can talk about all that. If you'd like a fun episode, hit up our Patreon. For sure. We have so many fun episodes on our Patreon. <laughs> They're folks. not all Don't- downers like this one. <laughs> Don't miss out. We get crazy. We haven't watched any three and Four and a half hour movies, excuse me, on Patreon yet. Thank oh, God. give me time. So yeah, dangerclosepod.com uh, forward slash support is where you can find our Patreon or just search Danger Close on Patreon. The show, of course, is called Danger Close Enough, where we discuss war-related and war-adjacent films in one way or another. It's close enough. Next week on Danger Close, we'll be discussing the 2006 film by British director Ken Loach, The Wind That Shakes the Barley. Starring Cillian Murphy, Liam Cunningham, and Orla Fitzgerald. This is the winner of our listener poll in a very tight race with the Thin Red Line, and it only won after a tie and a runoff poll. It takes place in Ireland during 1920, in the middle of the Irish War of Independence, and will be the first in our next series of films on rebellions and revolutions. Thanks, everybody! Goodbye. Goodbye.